Two, let's stand this morning, Psalm 33, if you're able to stand and join us for the reading of the Word of God. And the theme this morning, the message is about I Love America. And uh, I was thinking about all that's been going on. I've entitled the message today, Let's Make America Godly Again. How many of you think that'd be a good thing, to make America godly again? And it's a wonderful thing to be good, but we need to be a godly nation and uh, we're in Psalm 33, and I know at least one of these verses will be very familiar with you. I, I will tell you before the message this morning that this message is really a history lesson. And when you think about what is history, it's really his story. That's what history is. What I'm about to share this morning, and I'm glad it's going out by live stream, is not being taught in schools today. A lot of it's been ripped from the pages of history books. Children are not learning what I'm about to share with you this morning. But we need to understand our heritage, that it's a godly heritage. And let's make America godly again. Psalm 33, verse number 12, we'll begin there. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people whom he hath chosen for his own inheritance. The Lord looketh from heaven, he beholdeth all the sons of men from the place of his habitation. He looketh upon all the inhabitants of, on the, of the earth. He fashioneth their hearts alike. He considereth all their works. There is no king saved by the multitude of an host. A mighty man is not delivered by much strength. And horse is a vain thing for safety, neither shall he deliver any by his great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waiteth for the Lord. He is our help. And our shield. For our heart shall rejoice in him, because we have trusted in his holy name. And read with me together verse 22. Let thy mercy, O Lord, be upon us according as we hope in thee. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. I pray that you'd bless your word, and Lord, that you would continue to bless America. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. From our text this morning, as we read, beginning in verse number 12, our text begins with blessed, and many times the word blessed can be a word that is synonymous with happy. But the Bible says, blessed is the nation whose, and then the Bible continues. Now notice it does not say Blessed is the nation whose president is so-and-so. It does not say, blessed is the nation whose stocks are on the rise. It does not say, blessed is the nation whose health care law has been repealed. The answer is it does not say any of those things. It says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. That's the nation that God blesses. And I love in verse 22, the last verse we read together, it ends with these words, we hope in thee. And that was even mentioned this morning in the 
Sunday school hour that our only hope that we have is the Lord. Our hope is not in our nation's capital or in the White House or in the individual. The Bible says in Psalm 146 and verse 3, Put not your trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man, in whom there is no help. Folks, listen, it is hopeless to trust in man, especially those that are considered unrighteous. No matter who wins this election, can I tell you, the nation will not win, no matter who wins the election. We need to understand that our hope is in the Lord. Blessed is the nation whose God is Lord. If we truly want to be a great nation again, then we must seek to be a godly nation again. See, I truly hope, I hope in my heart that this nation wins. I hope the unborn wins. I hope that you and I, that, you know, in my heart, I am I'm a very optimistic person, and I hope that you are too. Many are very pessimistic, but I do believe that America is trusting in man instead of trusting in God. Certainly, I believe in voting for principles, and my wife and I, we stood in line for an hour the other night, and we voted, and we stood there and did our civic duty, and I believe in voting for principles, and I believe in voting for morality, and I believe in voting for what is righteous, but listen, we need to understand that it is these principles that we'll look at this morning and the morality that we find in God's word and the righteousness of God, those are the things that exalts a nation. And we need to understand that. We should vote. We should vote for principles over pocketbook. Scriptures are clear when you study the word of God that it is God that gives the increase, not politics. See, I'm hopeful for America. I want to see America to be great again, but that's only going to happen if America becomes godly again. And so notice this morning, as we look at this passage, I want you to see, first of all, America's greatness. Now, look, with all the faults that America has, I really believe that America is still the greatest place on the earth to live. And we know that's true. So many over the years have tried to leave their homes and come to this land that we love, that many times we take for granted. And why is America great? Well, some would say that America is great because of her beauty. I mean, America has some beautiful things. We read and sang this morning, Oh, beautiful for spacious skies, for amber waves of grain, for, as Brother David said, for purple mountain majesty above the fruited plains. Look, there's no doubt when you even look at the Word of God, Psalm 31 the Bible says favor is deceitful and beauty is vain. I mean, so many times we get hung up on the fact that America has been blessed, and certainly she has, but America, I think, has taken our country for granted. And as I look at our nation's history, I see that America, that God has shed his grace on thee. Uh, going back to the first book in our Bible, Genesis, in chapter 1, the Bible says that God, when he created everything that is in this world, including this land that we live in, the Bible says that God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. Psalm 91 just gives us a little picture of how God created this world. The heavens declare the glory of God, 
and the firmament showeth his handiwork. God created this world out of nothing. And America is certainly great because of her beauty, but can I tell you this morning that America, I believe, is great because of her freedoms. We love this land because of the freedoms that we have. The United States, it was mentioned this morning, is 244 years old this year. And when you think about that, we think that's old. But when you look at it from a historical standpoint, that's really young. It's, it's, a, it's a long time, I think, for a, a nation to remain free. But it's certainly young when you compare our nation to other nations like Egypt, China, Japan, Rome, and Greece, because those countries have been around for much, much longer than the United States, America is really just a child among the nations. When Thomas Jefferson, think about this, when Jefferson died, Abraham Lincoln was only 17 years old. When Lincoln was assassinated, Woodrow Wilson was only eight. By the time he died, Ronald Reagan was a boy of 12. So you take those individuals, Jefferson, Lincoln, Wilson, and Reagan. Those four men, if you look at their lives, they take us all the way back to the beginning of our country. It's amazing how young we are, but yet as a nation, we stand so tall among other nations. Why? Because of the principles that our nation was established upon. No other nation was established the way America was. And when I look at it, and I'm really struggling in my life because I see a real trend today in America, this, this sentiment of being anti-American. People today are anti-patriotic. One of our men, we were standing back there, and the, Brother Kenny and the choir were singing that wonderful song this morning. He says, boy, you don't hear that much anymore. You don't see people saluting the flag anymore. You see them burning it. There's a real sentiment today of anti-Americanism in our nation. The United Nations is doing much to strip us of our sovereignty. They have revised history. They continue to revise history to undermine the character and the integrity of our founding fathers. They go on to say that our founding fathers, by the way, this is not true. This is what the revisionists want us to believe. But they say that our founding fathers were, were not motivated by principle. They were motivated by property. They say they were motivated by greed and desire for wealth. Folks, that's just not true. The men that signed that document, now by the way, that's just the bottom of it that you see there, the Declaration of Independence, the men that signed that doctor, doc, document, it's interesting that as they signed it, those men knew that they had far more to lose by signing it than to gain. I was reading about it again because I think it's fascinating. We ought to know these things. Most of the men that signed the Declaration of Independence were already wealthy men. They weren't seeking property. 24 of them were lawyers. Nine of them were landowners or rich farmers. 11 of them were merchants. And others were physicians, ministers, politicians, and other trades. 
all but two that signed that document, only two of them did not have families. Everyone else did. When these men signed this document, as those men assembled there to sign, they were educated men that were standing in their communities, and they knew security, and they knew prosperity, but they felt that there was something far more important than prosperity and something far more important than security, and that is freedom. They wanted freedom. They knew that the penalty for doing something like they were about to do, to sign their name on that document, what it stood for, they knew the penalty for treason was death by hanging. But yet they picked up the pen. And they signed that document. It's John Hancock, the name that we oftentimes use when we say you need to sign your John Hancock. See how big it is? I love it. It's John Hancock. He signed, and they say twice, I think it's more than twice as large as most of the other signatures on that document. John Hancock signed it, and here's what he said. Now his majesty can read my name without his spectacles. He left no doubt who he was that signed that document. Stephen Hopkins, and don't advance that for a second. Go back, go back. If you look on, on my right, your left, about four or five signatures down, and I know it's a little hard to read, but I wanted you to see it on the document. I'll go to the other one. Is this is the name Stephen Hopkins. Oh, there you go. The, the miracle of technology. And uh, go to the next one there if you would. But I want you to see this signature, Stephen Hopkins. He actually signed it S-T-E-P Hopkins. You look at it and say, wow, what sloppy handwriting. Stephen Hopkins was suffering with palsy. He couldn't even hardly write as a matter of fact, as I was reading this, they said that he took his hand with his other hand to steady it. And he began to write his name as he was holding his right hand with his left. And here's what he said is as he signed his name, gentlemen, my hand trembles, but my heart does not. See, this is what children today are not being taught. That's patriotism. That's Americanism. That's what's being removed from our nation. The revisionists don't want, to, want us to know that while Stephen Hopkins and John Hancock and all those that signed that sacred document, that while they were signing, the British ships were just a few miles off the coast while they were signing that. These that signed that document, they were pursued. Some of them were captured. Many of them were tortured and of course, many of them lost their lives for signing that declaration of independence. When we see that flag, and we see the stars and the stripes, can I remind you why those stripes are red? Because of the blood that has been shed. When I see people today that want to burn the flag, can I tell you with all certainty that that is not, that is not, that is not freedom of speech. There's other ways that you can convey your feelings, your sentiment, and certainly you have the freedom to do that in our nation, but don't you burn my flag in front of me. 
Some people don't like that. I say, listen, if you don't like it, go find a flag in a country that you do like. But when you burn the flag, it's high treason against the land of the free and the home of the brave. And people that do something like that, that I think is an atrocity, they ought to be persecuted. Prosecuted, whatever. The greatness of our nation, America, one of the things that makes her great is our freedom that we have. And if we want to be great again, the only way we're going to be great is that we become godly again. See, I think about America's greatness, but you know why America is great? Because of America's God. America's God. See, the revisionists that I mentioned earlier, how they're wanting to rewrite the history books. They want to do that to undermine the character and the integrity of our founding fathers, and certainly they've already made great inroads. But can I tell you that they also want to undermine our godly heritage. If they had their way, they'd do what they did back in 1962 and remove God from the classroom. There would be no mention of God. Oh, we can mention every other little letter G, God in the world, but we cannot mention God Almighty. And we see that these revisionists have tried and continue to try. They're going to try to tell us that this nation was not really founded upon God. Look, folks, I don't understand why some Americans cannot just accept their roots. They act like tearing down a few statues is really going to change things. America's history is America's history. We were founded upon godly principles. I love what a South American president said years ago. People came to my continent looking for gold, but those that came to America were looking for God. Big difference. There's a lot of people even in America today that are their God is their gold, but listen, that's how our nation was founded was people came in here look they came here looking for God. They wanted to worship the true God. Some of those that came were the pilgrims. These were people that separated themselves from the Church of England. Back in 1620, the first pilgrims arrived here in our land. In the United States, there was a little band of people that crossed the Atlantic Ocean in a sailboat that they say was 26 feet by 113 feet. It landed on the Atlantic coast, and when it landed, it landed in the bitter cold of winter. As they stepped off the Mayflower, they signed a compact. That compact in the second paragraph begins with these words. They wrote these words in the bitter of winter in a brand new land for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. They say, boy, was it easy for the pilgrims? No. Matter of fact, that first winter it was so rough. They say that the daily ration of food was five, five grains of corn per person per day. That was a daily ration. That first winter, 44 people died in the first five months, but 58 people survived. And in the fall of 1621, listen to this, they reaped their first harvest. Now, remember what the daily ration was? Their first harvest in 1621 was 21 acres of corn. God blessed America. 
God's hand was upon those that came to our land seeking God, their immediate response, here it is, they thanked God. They took the time to thank God. They marched through the cornfields and listened to what they were singing. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. Where did they get that from? From the Bible. They're walking through the corn, singing the word of God, thanking God for what he had done on December 13th. Those 58 gathered together with 80 friendly Indians, and they celebrated three days of thanksgiving to God. Three days. So then in 1863, many years later, the president, Abraham Lincoln, he proclaimed a national thanksgiving day. I wonder how many times all we think about is turkey and pumpkin pie, and we don't think about the sacrifice that was made by so many so that we could have the freedom to sit down and have our turkey and pumpkin pie. Some of you look like you don't like pumpkin pie. I should have said pumpkin pie with Cool Whip, all right? Maybe that's a little better. But Lincoln, look what he said in his proclamation about Thanksgiving Day. He made an important and very accurate theological point. Listen to this. I believe it's in your notes. He says, we have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved, he says, these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient. Is that not America? Too self-sufficient, look at it, to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace too proud to pray to the God that has made us. I think Lincoln put it pretty good. You see, those that came to our land many years ago that paved the way, that sacrificed so much, not only the pilgrims, but there was a group of people called the Puritans. Now, the Puritans were not the pilgrims. These were people that actually tried to reform the Church of England. And a lot of times, there's good intentions there. They thought they could reform the Church of England from within, and they gave the reasons why they came to America as well. And they said that in the, this little opening sequence of the New England uh, co Confederation. Notice what they said. Wherein, or whereas, we all came into these parts of America with one and the same end and aim to advance the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ and to enjoy the liberties of the gospel in, he says here, in liberty and peace. Early on in our nation, Benjamin Franklin said when he was challenged about having a political session, and by the way, I love this because you don't see this going on much nowadays, but Franklin would open a session with prayer, and he was challenged about that. People are always going to challenge us when we take a stand for God, when we say something about Jesus or we pray in Jesus' name, and they challenge Franklin back in his day, and here's what he says, I've lived, sir, a long time, and the longer I live and the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men, and if a sparrow can fall to the ground without his notice, 
is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain who build it. God has built this land that we live in. It's not been because of man. Now, certainly there's been some talented individuals. There's been some people that God's hand has been upon them. I believe it's been through the preaching and the pulpits of America. I believe it's been through God's word that God has built this land. You even look and see how that the term separation of church and state is something that was coined in the United States from a letter, the principal framer of the Constitution and our third president, Thomas Jefferson, he wrote to the Danbury Baptist Association assuring them, listen to what Jefferson said to this association, that he was assuring them that he would keep the government out of the church. Do you notice that we believe that today, the separation of church and state? I don't stand here today to endorse a candidate I stand here today to lift up the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God is sovereign, as he said here in the the affairs of men. When I see what he was saying here, he was saying that never again, listen to this, this is what they dealt with when they lived in England. That's why they wanted to leave England. By the way, there's been so many from some other countries around the world who have wanted to come to America. Why? Because of the freedoms that we enjoy, because of the great God that we have in our land. And he was saying to them, never again will there be a government-sponsored church like there was back in England, where everyone back in England was forced. Look, I don't think, I don't think anybody forced you to attend church today. We made a few phone calls and talked to a few folks that have been trying to decide if they're going to come back or when they're going to come back, and and that's okay. I was talking to one of the ladies, and she said to me, she said, you know, Pastor, I'm just going to be honest with you. She said, I've just been lazy. And see, the, the devil loves the interruption. Many of you that are back now, you said the same thing. It's It is hard to stay home and worship God. And she said, I, I just, I was, I've just been struggling. She said, that's, that's probably the biggest reason why I haven't been in church. And I told her, I said, you know, sometimes I struggle too, but I, I, I just can't stay away from church because I'm the pastor. <laughs> and she did the same thing you did. She laughed. She says, yeah, you need to be there. You know why? Because my wife makes me. But I I look at this and I think to myself, our founding fathers came to this land seeking God. They were tired of being force-fed religion. They came seeking the freedom. The First Amendment actually says, Congress shall uh, shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. The Puritans, their first act at Plymouth Rock, listen to what they did. Their very first act, they knelt down, they praised God, and they dedicated the new colony to God. William Penn, who was a Quaker uh, in in his early days, he was writing some of the government policies in the very state that my wife and I went to visit our daughter and our son-in-law and our beautiful brand new baby uh, grandbaby. But William Penn was writing some of these government policies years ago. And listen, here's what he said. 
William Penn made sure, these are his words, that all treasurers, judges, and all elected officials profess faith in Christ. Boy, wouldn't that change our nation. We would be godly again if every politician had to be a born-again Christian. That's what Penn said in his day. Our founding fathers, they consistently spoke of the need of using the Bible and the Judeo-Christian values in defining and preserving this nation. Listen to this, 12 of the original 13 colonies actually incorporated the entire Ten Commandments into their civil and criminal codes. Our first president, George Washington, he took the oath of office by putting his hand on the Bible. His first official act as the president of the United States, he actually pulled the word of God up to his mouth. He kissed the Bible, and then the next two hours, they had a praise and worship service right there with the president of the United States in a session of Congress. They determined, Congress did, that they were going to open sessions of Congress in prayer. In 1956, Congress decided to put the words, in God we trust, on our currency. It's there, look, you pull something out right now. It's still there. But it means absolutely nothing to most people. But yet they saw fit to put that on the coins. In 1776, 11 of the 13 colonies required that one had to be a Christian to be eligible to run for political office. In 1777, the Continental Congress, how about this one? The Continental Congress, they voted to spend $300,000 to purchase Bibles for distribution in our nation. Wow. That's putting money to good use. You would never see anything like that today. President John Adams stated the law given from Sinai was a civil and municipal code as well as a moral and religious code. 94%, 94% of the writings of the founding fathers contained quotations from the Holy Scriptures. 94%. All 50 state constitutions, all of them, mention God. Every last one of them. The famous Liberty Bell, and you see a picture of it there, on the Liberty Bell is a portion of Leviticus 25.10. It's inscribed right on the bell, which says, Proclaim liberty throughout all the land under the, all the inhabitants thereof. That's why they call it the Liberty Bell. If you go to Los Angeles and you see the, the, the Los Angeles City Hall, and you, maybe you can't see it, do your magic with the thing there again. Pull that in, the, the header above that door. Can you do that? Come on. There you go. Look at that. Righteousness exalteth a, and it doesn't say nation, it says a people. That's the L.A. City Hall building. It's inscribed right there, Proverbs 14, 34. Righteousness exalteth a nation, but a sin is a reproach to any people. An entering president, when any president takes the oath of office, he puts his right hand on the word of God, and he concludes these words that says, so help me, God. And you wonder who's running our nation. The first vice president of our, of our nation and the second president, John Adams, in 1798. Here's what he said. 
Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. And his son and our sixth president, John Quincy Adams, went on to say later on in his life, no book in the world deserves to be so unceasingly studied and so profoundly meditated upon as the Bible. You see, if we want to be a godly nation again, we need to get back in the book. Study the Word of God. In 1781, President Thomas Jefferson said, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that His justice cannot sleep forever. I have the same feeling. In 1917, Theodore Roosevelt, America's 26th president, wrote, In this actual world, a churchless community, a community where men have abandoned and scoffed at or ignored their religious needs, is a community that's on the rapid downgrade. In 1911, Woodrow Wilson, our 28th president, governor of New Jersey, said America was born a Christian nation. America was born to exemplify that devotion to the elements of righteousness which are derived from the revelations of the Holy Scripture. In 1923, Calvin Coolidge, our 30th president, said this about our founding fathers. They were intent upon establishing a Christian commonwealth in accordance with the principle of self-government. They were an inspired body of men. It has been said that God sifted the nations that he might send choice grain into the wilderness. Who can fail to see it? In the hand of destiny, who can doubt that it was that it has been guided by a divine providence? Harry Truman, our 33rd president, not known for a to be a committed believer in Christ, but he also understood the spiritual heritage of our nation. Here's what Truman said: If men and nations would but live by the precepts of the ancient prophets and the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, problems which now seem so difficult would soon disappear. It's amazing the things you find when you start to study our nation's history. President Ronald Reagan said, if we ever forget that we are one nation under God, then we will be one nation gone under. George W. Bush, President George W. Bush, was asked to name the philosopher that had the greatest influence on his life, and notice what he said. He said, my answer is Christ. Because he changed my heart. You see, I, when I look at America, I really believe that America is a great nation, but America has forgotten her God. We enjoy the freedoms to do whatever we want, but what we need to do is come back to God so that we can be a godly nation. You see, I see America in her greatness, and I see America's God, but notice we also see America's guilt. Edmund Burke put it this way, the guilt of America lies in the indifference and complacency, notice, of God's people. It doesn't say unbelievers. It's talking about Christians. He says it lies in the indifference, the complacency of God's people. All that is necessary, Burke said, for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. How many Christians today are doing absolutely nothing? And that's why the Bible says that we are become a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and derision to them that are round about us. 
In the book of Judges, clearly, you can see as you study the book of Judges that God would rather forgive and restore us than he would to judge us. Daniel 9, 9, to the Lord our God, nothing, notice here, to the Lord our God belongs mercies and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. You see, with the children of Israel and even America today, that over and over again, we've turned our back on our godly heritage. The Bible says in Psalm 78, 8, and might not be as their fathers who were a stubborn and a rebellious generation, a generation that set not their heart aright and whose spirit was not steadfast with God. I see many times how, listen, I think all of us know what we deserve because of the sin. But time and time again, you see the goodness and grace of God that Israel would repent and that what would God do? God would forgive them. Aren't you glad for the grace of God? The forgiveness of God? You know, when you stop and think about it, this restoration, it is something that is conditional. It all boils down to one little two-letter word, the word if. Brother Flynn used it this morning. Brother Kenny chose it, not knowing what the message was today. But I want you to see the verse again. 2 Chronicles 7, 14. What's the first word? See, look, you can read the whole rest of the verse. But that little word is the hinge. If. See, God's given you a choice. You have freedom. See, people act like they can do what they want in America, and certainly we have freedom to do that. But is what we're doing pleasing to God? And God says here, if my people. Look, don't look beyond yourself. I'm not looking at you today. I'm looking at me. God says, if my people, look at it, which are called by my name. If when you got saved, you became a Christian. God says, if my people, which are called by my name, would humble themselves and pray and seek my face. See, all that needs to happen until you get to, look at this, then, then will I hear. God says, these are the steps. See, America's guilty. We've got the blood of unborn children on our hands. We've done that which is right in our own eyes. And yet we want God's blessings. Something's wrong in America. See, this word if. The solution, can I tell you, is not in the White House. <clears throat> the solution's not in the State House or the Courthouse. The solution's in God's house. It's in your house. It's in my house. Jesse Alberta said, so long as there are homes where fires burn and there is bread, so long as there are homes where lamps are lit and prayers are said, although people falter through dark and nations grope with God himself behind these homes, we still have hope. 
Something's wrong with America. She once held the Bible as her conscience and guide. But we've allowed those who hold nothing to be sacred, like Sodom of old, to push morals aside. Where are the men who once stood for right and the women who championed their cause? We must return to the values we've left before this country we love is totally lost. We want America back from those who have no self-control. This nation is like a runaway train headed down the wrong tracks. It's time the army of God arise and say, we want America back. I love America, and I know you do too, but I do not like what she has become. Scripture has said, and we read it in Psalm 33, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And America has forgotten the godly foundation upon which she was built. Something is wrong. Our children are asked to attend public schools that in many cases resemble war zones. Without even the most basic right of any soldier, the right to pray to the God of heaven. Many times a wild-eyed, drug-addicted, gun-carrying teenager is allowed to stay in school while our Supreme Court decided to expel God from the classroom over 50 years ago. Something is wrong. Television daily bombards the senses of our nation with the idea that wrong is right, that the abnormal is normal, that the abhorrent is acceptable, and what God calls an abomination is nothing more than an alternate lifestyle. And it's had an effect. Fifty years ago, the number one television program in America was the Andy Griffith Show. Look what we have today. Something is wrong when our government could pass out contraceptives to children in school without parental consent. And yet the Gideons can no longer pass out the Bible on campus. Something is wrong when our leaders can tell your children and mine that premarital sex is all right as long as it's safe. Yes, something is wrong. I don't know about you, but I, for one, I'm ready for a change. I will say to my government, I'm raising children at my house, children that are created in the image and likeness of Almighty God, and I'm going to teach them the Bible. And if the Bible says it's right, then it's right. And if the Bible says it's wrong, then it's wrong. The only hope that America has is that godly men and women of character will stand together as one mighty army and declare to the immoral, the impure, the obscene, and the foul that your days of unlimited access to the minds of America are over. The army of God that has been silent for too long is taking America back. We want America back from those who have no self-control. We want America back. Do you love America? Something is wrong with America. Do you love America's God? I love America, but I do not like what she's become. And if America is ever going to be great again, then America must be godly again. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I told you as I started the message this morning, the message was a history lesson. I don't think that it's wrong to share Scripture and share the godly heritage 
that we have as Americans. I love America. And I hope that you love America too. And we as God's people must pray and seek God's face. Humble ourselves. And then God will hear from heaven. Would you stand this morning as you stand to your feet with your heads bowed? The piano's playing. Brother Kenny's softly singing this morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. I don't know about you this morning, but every time I looked over my notes for this message and spent studying, my heart was just stirred up. And if God is speaking to you this morning, why don't you come? Pray for America. Why don't your whole family, hand in hand, come to the altar? If you have no family with you, grab a brother or sister in Christ and say, will you come with me and pray? Pray that we would turn back to God before it's too late. I don't know what it is that's holding the judgment of God back, but I do know what will, and that is God's people praying, seeking the Lord. If you need to be saved this morning and you do not know Christ as your Savior, why don't you come today? Say, I'm guilty of the sin in my life. I don't know Christ as my Savior. I don't know about that godly heritage that you've been talking about this morning, and I want to trust the Lord as my Savior today. Why don't you come and we'll take the Bible and show you how you can know for sure that heaven will be your home someday. If you need to be saved, why don't you come? Let's continue to pray this morning. That God's will would be done.